Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Last week, uh, I said I was starting our Easter message early. And uh, so I told you what I'm going to preach on this week. I'm really going to have to bump that to another week because I want to insert something in the middle. We're talking about what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And so what, what did God really accomplish? So last week we looked at what is the gospel, the gospel proclamation. And we, we've discovered that the gospel, the Greek word is evangelion, that the gospel is a certain genre of communication. It's not just an announcement, it's, it's, it is good news. The, the etymology, if we break that word down, it's two words, good news. And it is good news, but it's good news about a specific thing. And it was a military announcement. It was an announcement of a conquering king. And so when we talk about the gospel, it was really a proclamation or an announcement. Hey, there's there's a king outside the city and he's coming to take over. And you can either surrender or you can succumb to his power. And uh, he will come in by force. And that, that is really the background on that word gospel. And so when we talk about proclaiming the gospel, it really is the invasion of the kingdom of God. That's why the scripture talks of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Or, and that word kingdom is really king's dominion. So it's the good news about the king bringing his dominion to earth. Now if you've been conquered by him, you know how good a news that is. And so that's, we looked at that last week. Uh, we're going to look next, not today, but the next time I'm in the pulpit, we're going to look at the subject of what did Jesus really accomplish at the cross. We, we often think about how it affected us as individuals, and there's, there's certainly a validity to that, that his death purchased my personal salvation, but it's more than that. Jesus came to reconcile the cosmos to himself. And so we're going to look at how that happened uh, another week. But what I want to look at this morning is the process of the gospel. There's, uh, matter of fact, look with me in, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He says, hey guys, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul said, I didn't try to wax eloquent. I didn't try to argue you into the kingdom. I made a proclamation, and then there was a demonstration. And so it wasn't that he was trying to talk them into something that someone else could talk them out of. Because the gospel is not meant to, it's, it's not merely a convincing argument. It was something to be experienced. And so Paul talks about this wisdom, but then he shifts gears. Look in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. That's what we're going to look at the next time. Verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. And he just spoke of those rulers of the age being doomed. He said none of the rulers of this age understood this because it was hidden. He just said it was a secret wisdom. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what God did is he baited the hook and drew them in. He lured the enemy in with bait. He set the hook. Matter of fact, there's this interesting verse in Job. It says, who can catch Leviathan? Can you catch him with bait and hook? And the, the great reformer, Martin Luther, the, the father of the Lutheran church, in his commentary on Job, he said, yes. He said, Jesus was the bait and the cross was the hook. The Lord, kind of, I, I remember a buddy of mine took me to a uh, an abandoned rock quarry down by Atumwa. I wish I could remember where it was because the fishing was really good. We'd, we'd put our, our, our uh, bait on the end and we'd, you could see like 10, 15 feet into the clear water and we'd just kind of bump the bass in the nose until they bit and then we'd reel them in. And that's what God did with the enemy. He, he bumped the enemy's nose with Jesus, lured him in, but it was a hidden wisdom. And when the enemy swallowed Jesus, God set the hook and reeled him in. But it's the hidden wisdom of God. Now, we know that's true of Calvary. We know that's true of this scenario, of the, this Easter resurrection story. But I would propose to you that that is a strategy that God uses again and again and again and again. It's one of the ways of the kingdom. Both Moses and David cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, show me your ways. And the reason they cried out to the Lord, show me your ways, because if you know his ways, then you can cooperate with him. If, you're, if you know his ways, you can get in the way and intercept him. I want to intercept God. I want to be doing what he's doing. I want to get in on his activity in the earth. In order to do so, sometimes we stumble into that by accident, but it's much more preferable to do it intentionally, to get in God's ways. And one of the strategies, one of the ways by which God operates is this strategy called hidden wisdom. Another way that is spoken of in Scripture is with this phrase, the mysteries of the kingdom. Matthew 13 is probably the most famous passage in dealing with that subject, that God works by mysteries. The Greek word there is mysterion. And it had to do with military strategy where generals would get, gather intel and they would get all the information they could. They would send out spies and they would have people looking over the lay of the land and the movement of the enemy. And then they would shut themselves into a secret place, a, a locked room or a hidden tent, and they would hammer out the strategy and once they determined what they were going to do, that strategy was then sealed in a leather satchel with a wax seal. And what was in that satchel was known as the Mysterion or the Mysteries. And that Mysterion would then be delivered to the front line so they could execute the strategy. And that level of strategy, that, that, uh, that, way of operating was so important that if the wax seal was broken, it was back to the drawing board. They wouldn't execute the strategy. Because this 
strategy, this wisdom, this material was so important they couldn't risk that it got into enemy hands. And that's what Paul is alluding to in this passage. And again, that is what he did at Calvary. It was hidden to the principalities and powers. They, what they thought was their greatest victory. Now, finally, they would get their hands on the Son of God himself. That's why Jesus beating the torture was so brutal and so thorough. Because finally, they had their hands on God himself. Prior to that, the only way to hurt the heart of God would to hurt, was to hurt humanity and to touch God's heart. But now finally they had God himself in their hands and they shredded his back and beat him and ridiculed him and many scholars believe that he was sexually violated, hung naked on the cross. And what they thought was their greatest victory was actually their undoing. That by the hidden wisdom of the cross, God unraveled the kingdom of darkness. And the fall was turned on itself and began to work in reverse. We know it's true of this scenario, of what we celebrate on this weekend every year. But I'm telling you, this strategy of heaven, the hidden wisdom of God, is utilized again and again and again in the believer's life. And if we don't understand that, we can get ourselves into a real pickle of a situation. Because often, when God is carrying out his hidden wisdom, it's not just hidden to the enemy. It's hidden to you and I. And when the enemy feels like it's greatest, his greatest victory, you and I, when we judge by appearances, can sit in agreement with the enemy. We can feel like the Lord has delivered us up. We feel like we're the bait. He put us on the end of the hook. And the fact is, that's often true. God will lure the enemy into scenarios where he's going to defeat him and undo him and, and uh, break things loose in your life. But that is precipitated by you being introduced to some really challenging situations where it feels like all is lost. I know many of us feel that way with things in our nation right now. We feel like, oh man, all is lost and there's, there's things happening right now that are, this is not good. But I'm telling you, God is operating behind the scenes. And we've got to understand that because that's what will hold us in our faith in those times. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And let's, let's look at verse 1. Man, I, I've been reading through this, this passage again and again, and it just so ministered to my heart. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She was eager to get there. Now you've got to understand that Mary is presently in the midst of the mystery the enemy, the, 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 the hook has been set, but the enemy has not yet been lured in. Hell is celebrating, and Jesus' followers are devastated. This is a woman who's given everything, walked away from everything to follow him. And she watched him be crucified and die. 
And now he's been buried. And the only thing she knows to do is, I've got to go to the last place I knew he was. I've got to go stand by his body. I'm going to go, I'm going to go put spices around his dead corpse. Because that's the last vestiges he has to hold on to. So it was the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's the writer of this book, by the way, John. He very humbly referred to himself as that. And you'll notice in the race to the tomb, he mentions that he run, won the race too. It... Uh, <laughs> And the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. John mentions there's a we. He didn't mention any other names. Mark mentions to us it was Mary, the mother of James, and another woman named Salome. So these three ladies, it's interesting to me, and, and the women's group should wave their hanky and say amen. Uh, it's interesting to me that it was the women who went to minister to his body. The guys, they were, they were all locked up in their rooms. And they, 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 even after this, they kept the doors locked because they were afraid of repercussions of Rome. But the women, they were the ones. It was the women and the youth group. Okay? Seriously. Jo the Apostle John, the Apostle John, who was a teenager at the time, it was John and a bunch of women that stood with Jesus at the cross. The men's group, they were, they were out running for their lives. One of, one of the leaders of the men's, sorry Roger, the leader of the men's group denied him three times. But the women's group and the youth group, it was a small youth group, small youth group. So these ladies went to prepare his body and she tells him, she says, listen, somebody's taken his, bo his body away. Now look at, look at what she says. Look at, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. You've got to be very, very careful in your season of disappointment. One of God's strategies is to give you a promise, allow the promise to seem to die, take you through a period of disappointment and death where your faith is tested only to resurrect that thing and see everything undone. But between the death and the resurrection of the promise is a very crucial time for our faith. I'm telling you, God uses this strategy. This is the way of the kingdom. This is how God operates in the life of his children. And if we don't understand that, we can be like, I'm sorry, we can be like the men in the story who even after the resurrection went back to their old occupation. Do you realize that? Jesus reveals himself to them in John chapter 20, but in John chapter 21, the leader of the men's group, Peter, says, guys, I'm going fishing. And they all said, we're going with you. You can make a real strong case for the fact that in actuality, Peter backslid. It's not that he gave up faith in Jesus, he gave up faith in himself. The crucifixion was devastating because they thought they had lost their Lord. But the resurrection was devastating on another plane because Peter recognized that he had given up faith during that season between the death and the resurrection.
So Peter wasn't giving up on Jesus, he was giving up on Peter. And so we've got to be very careful in our walk with God because I'm telling you, you will go through a season of death, burial, and resurrection again and again and again. And if you've not experienced it yet, just, just wait, be patient, it's coming. Because this is the way of the kingdom. This is how God operates. God will make a promise. There's the seeming death of the promise. There's the burial of the promise. And you've got to stand strong until the resurrection of the promise. And I'm going to tell you, the resurrection of the promise is better than had the promise been originally fulfilled. Resurrection life is always better than natural life. And so she says, we don't, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. During those seasons of disappointment, it's very easy to become confused about who's doing what. You end up blaming the enemy for what God's doing and blaming God for what the enemy's doing. She said, they have come and taken him. There was no they that took him. Nobody took his life and nobody took his body. He gave his life and he got up out of the grave on his own, rolled the stone back and walked out. But see, from Mary's perspective, because she was in the hidden, the season of the hidden wisdom, she didn't know what had happened. She didn't know where he had gone. She didn't know who had taken him. And so we've got to be very, very careful in those seasons of disappointment when it seems like our dreams, our promises have been dashed. Because you can end up blaming the enemy for things that God is really doing. And you can resist God's activity and you can actually blame God for the things the enemy's doing and end up aiding and abetting the enemy. And so during times of disappointment, I want to tell you, you need to really hold your opinion very cautiously. Don't make major decisions in an hour of disappointment. And do what Mary did. She just went back to the, the last place she knew he was. It's all she knew to do. Go back to the last place you encountered him. So she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have led, laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Peter, John humbly uh, mentions that he won the race. And stooping to look in, John was younger, he was the youth group. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Isn't that amazing? That just so intrigues me. That when Jesus was resurrected, he came up out of the cloth. I mean, he is, he is setting the, he, he's instituting the process by which the whole cosmos is going to come back into alignment with God's will. He is saving humanity. He's conquering the principalities and powers, but yet he takes time to fold his faith cloth, face cloth. I don't know what that's about, other than you need to clean your room, guys. Okay? It's, God, it's a godly thing to keep things in order. 
Isn't that, isn't that just intriguing that he does that? There is a reason they call them unclean spirits. I'm just saying, okay? And then some of you, I could feel it. When you looked at me, you said, Pastor, I've seen your desk. And I, I felt that resistance. So my desk is now clean, by the way. I cleaned it the other way. That's why I'm preaching this. So, okay. I digress. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. But it wasn't that he was believing that Jesus was raised, because it says in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. The thing that would hold us during the times of disappointment is understanding the scripture. And because they didn't understand the scripture, it was easy to be disappointed. So get to know the scripture. That's, that's good preaching. But here's the thing. I, I'm going to now tell you the flip side. Often, your revelation in the scripture will come from your experiences of disappointment. There's an interesting verse. I want to say it's in John chapter 8. Jesus says, They who follow after me shall never walk in darkness. They shall have the light of life. It's an interesting phrase, the light of life. What is that? I believe what he's saying is often it's your experience that will shed light on the word. That goes contrary to what a lot of people will tell you. People say, oh, you shouldn't judge the word by your experience. Well, we all do. We either judge it by our experience or our lack of experience. But the fact is there are a lot of passages you don't really understand until you go through something and all of a sudden you see it in a different light and you realize that's what it's talking about. And so if you really want to grow in revelation, you got to go through some things. Because there's a lot of things that God will never be able to teach you in your ivory tower, in, you know, in your, your just your disconnected theoretical armchair, you know, I've, I've got a lazy, I've got two lazy boys at home. One is in my office and one is in my bedroom. My kids have often asked me, Dad, why do you take naps in your office but study in your bedroom? I don't know. I, it's probably because the lazy boy in my bedroom is really old. I mean, that thing is molded to my body. It's, we keep it in the bedroom so guests can't see it because it's a little ratty looking. But oh man, that thing just fits me. And I, I've had wonderful times with the Lord in that chair. But there are things I've sat in that chair for many, many years now. And the Lord has shown me things but I didn't really, really understand it until I was in the midst of some situations. My favorite author outside of the Bible is a guy named T. Austin Sparks. He was a pen pal of Watchman Nee, a British teacher, and uh, I think he died in the 60s. You can even find some kind of grainy recordings of his teachings, but tremendously insightful guy. And he said this, he said, God keeps revelation of himself wrapped up in practical situations. He said outside of a situation, what God will do is he'll put you in a situation and cause you to be in great need. And then he'll reveal himself as the answer to your need. And if you understand something apart from need, it's theory. And he said this, he said, that's information, that's not revelation. When it's revelation, 
is when it, say, it pulls your fat out of the fire. When you realize, man, I, I, I needed to know this in order to make it through. Those are the things, if you think about it, the things that you really value in life, the, the truths that you can really share with others and are a conviction in your heart, the things that are most valuable, the things that will bring a tear to your eye when you think of it, though, it's those things where God reveals himself as the answer. I remember, I, I taught on marriage before I got married. It was information, it was not revelation. <laughs> I taught on parenting. It was really information. And a lot of it was wrong information, by the way. And then I had kids, and I needed a revelation. Healing's the same thing. You can have information about healing, but when you get in those situations and Jesus reveals himself as Jehovah Jireh, all of a sudden you have revelation. He has made himself real to it. That's why First Corinthians chapter, right at the end of chapter one, I want to say it is, it says that Jesus has become unto us the wisdom of God. He he's reveals himself as the answer. So if you want to grow in God, God will take this scenario we're talking about right now, and he'll take you through it again and again and again. And if you're not careful when you're in the midst of it, you'll feel like, well, if, with friends like this, who needs enemies? Man, of God, if this is how you treat your children. But in reality, God is bestowing on you a great honor. He's taking you into a season of revelation so he can reveal himself as the answer to your need. So if you really want to be someone that walks with God, a, a man or a woman of revelation, then get ready to go through some things. You will live from need to need. Some of the people that I've, I've known that have carried the greatest revelation of Jesus have been single moms. I've known a number of single moms over the years that have kept their heart right through thick and thin and they carried a tremendous revelation. My spiritual mom, Pat Bowman, she got pregnant at 16 years old, married the guy who gave her another daughter, and then he abandoned her, left her. And she raised those kids as a very young mom. But she encountered Jesus, and she would, I mean, there were times where she was just, it was from hand to mouth that she was living. And there were tremendous miracles in her life. This woman carried revelation. She was the one that turned me on to Austin Sparks. She gave me this little tiny book. It was, she had hers, carried, she punched holes in it, had little rings around it. She had so worn it out. And she said, you need to read this. And I'd read it and I didn't even understand it. But she would take me to McDonald's and read to me that book and talk to me about her life and the kingdom. And there were times where I'd be crying out to God about things and she'd say, hey, let's meet at McDonald's for that, that coffee. And we'd sit there and drink McDonald's coffee for hours and she would talk to me and my heart would burn because that woman had a revelation. Why? Because she lived in tremendous need. That is the danger of prosperity in America. God told Israel, he said, when you prosper and you have forgotten me. I want to choose to live needy so he doesn't have to force it on me. But God will reveal himself to us. And so the disciples, 
It says they did not know the scriptures. Jesus had openly talked about this. Uh, the son of man will be crucified. He'll be like Jonah. He'll be in the belly of the earth for three days and rise again. And it was right over their heads. He spoke it out. And the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms could hear that. And it went right by him. He was speaking out the mysteries of the kingdom. Because what was motivating him was love. And they, they couldn't talk on that frequency. They, they, they couldn't understand this, this thing that God was doing. And often God will lead you into situations and circumstances where it's you're under tremendous need and it feels like, Lord, I need you every hour to get through this thing. I'm gonna tell you, there's gonna be a season in your life where you will look back after you get through that time and you will value those seasons more than anything else because of what you got out of it. People who have been through things and kept their heart right have something of Jesus that others don't have. And so it says, they went in and they saw and believed. What they believed is that he was gone. They didn't know where. Was, John wasn't saying, and they believed that he was raised. They believed because later on, Mary will come and tell them, and they still didn't believe. She said, I saw the Lord, and they, they didn't believe. It's interesting. History refers to Mary Magdalene as the apostle to the apostles, because as we're going to see in a few minutes here, she's going to encounter Jesus, and Jesus is going to send her to the disciples and say, hey, go tell the apostles, go tell my apostles, my disciples, that you saw me. Go give them the news. So she was a sent one to the sent ones, and they didn't even believe her. He bestowed this honor on her. I'm so intrigued by Mary of Magdalene, or Magdala, Mary Magdalene. So look what it says. Verse 10. Well, look, look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And they not only went back to their homes, again, in the next chapter, they go back to their vocation. And it's a sermon for another week, but it's a precious passage. John 21, we see them having to be recalled. They got called by God. And it wasn't the resurrection, I mean the, the crucifixion that sent them back to their old occupation. It was actually the resurrection that sent them back to their old occupation. To me that's very intriguing. Because they were so disappointed in how they saw themselves stewarding this season of disappointment that they were disillusioned. Peter gave up on Peter and the rest followed. They obviously gave up on themselves as well. And Jesus has to recall them. But there was something different about Mary. There was something about Mary that the disciples didn't have. The disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So the disciples, they, they ran, they came, they looked. They verified, yeah, he's gone. And then they went home. But Mary couldn't bring herself to leave the last location she knew he was at. That was the one thing she was holding on to. What was the deal with Mary? What's the background on this woman? Well, we know from Scripture, 
We don't, we don't know a lot about her. Uh, and there's some, some scholars will say she was the one who, uh, you know, uh, washed Jesus' feet with their tears and uh, poured the perfume on him. Most scholars believe those are two separate Marys. Matter of fact, there's a lot of Marys in Scripture. There's a number of them that show up. But we do know that this Mary had six devils cast out of her by Jesus. She had been a tormented woman, a woman who was broken, and she couldn't find any relief. How many of you have ever seen The Chosen? That, that movie? How many of you have not seen The Chosen? I'm gonna get, there's going to be some homework this morning, okay? Let me give you an assignment. I want to encourage you. Go home. You can just go on. Just Google The Chosen. It'll come up. You can watch it for free. The first episode of the first season. The first time I watched it, I bawled like a schoolgirl. And every time I've watched it, I've cried. I just watched it again in my office. I showed it to Pastor Laura. It is a powerful scene of Mary Magdalene. Now, it fills in, it, it takes some artistic license and, you know, fills in the backstory on this woman. But there is some church history that we can draw from. We do know from the Bible that she was demonized. She was tormented by six demons. And that Jesus cast them out of her. We don't know the scenario. So, what they do in the chosen, I'm going to kind of ruin it for you, but I'm telling you, it'll be worth the watch. And if you don't cry, I want to pray for you. Okay? <laughs> It so moves me. It shows her in this, this episode as a little girl being raised by her Jewish father. And she would be afraid. Her, and you could tell her dad's a sick man, but she would come out and she would be afraid at night. And he would quote to her Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I am with you. I have called you by, my, by name. You are mine. And he would tell her, what happens when you're afraid? And she would say, we speak the verse, Daddy. And they would say it together. Fear not, for I am with you. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And it shows her as a little girl. And he would say, yes, you're mine. And he'd hold her. And then it shows him passing away. And then it shows in her adult life. The implication is that she was abused by a Roman soldier. And that was not a very uncommon thing. Roman soldiers could do whatever they wanted with non-Roman citizens, women or children. And it often happened. And that was the way that they surmised she ended up demonized and tormented. So we see a, a scene in that movie where she's, she wakes up, she's come out of this demonic stupor and this guy's all bloody and he's running, she tried to kill me. And she's just devastated and she grabs this little doll that you saw in the scene with her dad and she, she has a little scripture hidden within the doll and she reads it again and again. And then we see Nicodemus, the great teacher of the law come and the Romans said, hey, you got to help this woman. She's, she's wigging out and she needs a holy man. And so he comes and he adjures that demon by Raphael and, and Gabriel and Michael and the name of Moses and Abraham. And she sends him running with his tail between his legs because she needs a greater name. And in this movie, she's so tormented that she just, she, she took the, the verse, and she shredded it. She gave the doll away to this, this, this bartender who was a, 
a guy that gave her some medicine and it didn't work. And so now she's at the end of a rope. She's going to kill herself. See, she's thinking the only way out of this is if I can just die. And she goes to an edge of a cliff. And all of a sudden there's this dove flies by and it gets her attention. And she kind of just follows the dove back to the bar. And she tells the barkeep, she said, give me some of your booze. And he said, this is not the answer. Everybody refers to her by another name, Lilith. And she's begging, please just give me some. And finally he gives some to her. And as she's going to drink it, a hand. It's the first time you see him enter the movie. It's the last five minutes. Don't speed up there though. Okay, I'm telling you, it'd be worth watching. And all of a sudden this hand comes on hers. And he says, that's not for you. And she thought it was a man that was propositioning her a few moments earlier who walked away and said, I don't care, you smell anyway. She's just humiliated and just, uh, she's lost all her dignity. And she looks up and it's Jesus. And all of a sudden she begins to be tormented because I'm gonna tell you, when he comes on the scene, those spirits get stirred up. She begins to pound her head and she said, get away from me. She grabs her little glass of booze and walks out and he starts following her. And she's saying, get away from me, get away from me. And he says to her, he says, Mary. And she stops. And then he says, Mary Magdala. And she drops her glass. And the booze pours all over the ground. And she turns around and said, how do you know my name? How do you know who I am? And he begins to quote the verse her dad used to quote to her, fear not. And it's so well acted, you can see just the hope that comes in her and the astonishment. Fear not, for I am with you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And he comes over and as he says, she's just stunned and she begins to shake. And he says, you are mine. He grabs her face. And she begins to go through deliverance. It's very well done. Especially, it's by a Baptist. I don't know how much deliverance they've seen, but it's powerful. <laughs> okay? She begins, and he just pulls her head into his chest. And she's weeping. I want to tell you, that's why she stayed at the cross. That's why she stayed at the tomb. When everybody else left, she didn't understand. She thought somebody else had taken him. She attributed to the devil what God was doing. She was confused. But the one thing she had going for is she knew she loved him because of what he'd done for her. She was a prisoner of love. And she thought, all I can do is go and stand at the last place I knew he was. And she stood and she wept. The passage says, then she, as she's weeping, she stooped in to look. The disciples had already gone in. But this time, one gospel highlights that one angel, or a man, it was an angel, was sitting there. The other gospel mentions there were two, but the one spoke. So one gospel, John mentions the one that spoke. The other gospel said there were two. One, there, uh, maybe it's John that says there's two. And it says there was one sitting where his feet were and one sitting where his head was. And it's like this picture of the mercy seat. The two cherubim that are covering the mercy seat. And it's the true mercy seat. Where he's been resurrected. And the angel says to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
And she said, listen, if you've taken him, just tell me where he's gone and I'll, I'll go get his body. They were going to pack his body. She just wanted to be next to the vestiges of who, he, who she fell in love with. And she turned around and all of a sudden there was a man there and he said, ask her the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? I think it's interesting that the angels, and it was Jesus, asked her the same question. You know, when God, or an angel for that matter, when an angel or God asks you a question, it's not for their information. God is not going to be enlightened by our answers. I've tried it. I've thought I was going to enlighten God on a number of occasions and fill him in on what he really should do. He's, he's just not real teachable with me. <laughs> when God asks us a question, and you see this all through scripture, God will ask his servants questions. Why? It's for their revelation, not his information. It's not that he needs to be enlightened. He already knows, but he'll ask these, di like a good counselor. You ever, you ever had a friend that you ask him a question when they're wise, and so they just ask you a question back? It can kind of be irritating, you know? It's not what I asked. You're not answering. But God will do that, and he asks her a question. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? He begins to put his finger on what she really needs. It's a good question. Why, why was she weeping? I think what we just talked about is the very reason that Mary stood at the cross when most of his disciples the ones he directly called to be apostles, left. This woman who'd been delivered. This woman who found freedom. She's numbered among a group of women who supported Jesus' ministry. She provided for, financially, for his ministry. We don't know what her background is. We could, you know, guess. But the fact is, she just followed him everywhere he went. She stayed at the cross, and she's the one, the one person who stayed at the tomb. And it was her that Jesus bestowed upon the great honor of being the first one to proclaim the resurrection. Let's read it here. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. And she stooped to look, in, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. I'm telling you, that's when, when you're in an hour of disappointment, it's easy to miss Jesus. You, uh, you can attribute his activity to the enemy. You can attribute the enemy's activity to him. And even when you see him, you can miss him. In an hour of disappointment, it's easy to mistake in Jesus for something else. What God is doing in your life to attribute it to something else. What kept her in that hour was her great love for him. Faith works by love. She saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, I don't know if that's why the writer of that great movie that you're going to watch today I don't know if that's why they inserted that, him calling her by name and referring to Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. I don't know if they inserted that because they saw it at the end of her life that she was called by name and the effect it had on her. And they thought, well, that'd be a great tie-in, which I think it is. But here he did call her by name. And when he called her name, she suddenly knew who he was. He said, whom are you seeking, supposing him to be the gardener? She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, for I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. She went on and she delivered the message. They didn't believe her, because she was a woman. And in that culture, a woman's testimony wasn't even allowable in court, but it was in the court of heaven. Don't you know those old boys were embarrassed? They were the preachers, and they didn't believe her message that she was sent by the Lord to deliver to them. Now, I read this, and it just blows my mind. He said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There's a lot in there. Jesus is in the midst of, this event is the hinge of history. Everything for all time and eternity is turning on this event. He is stripping the principalities and powers of their, their authority. He's redeeming all of mankind. It's, it's an amazing thing. And yet he pauses in the midst of this activity because he wants to visit Mary. He says, I mean, we need to catch this. He is just raised from the dead, and now he is going to go to the Father. It very possibly could be what Hebrews chapter 9 talks about, where Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies based on his own righteous life and presents the Father with the blood. It's what the high priest would do once a year. But Jesus, as the high priest and as the lamb, and takes his own blood and he walks in and he presents it to the Father. And the Father accepts it. I mean, this is a big deal. But in the midst of it, he says, wait, I've got something to do. I've got to stop by and talk to Mary. I don't know if that touches you, but that touches me. That the Lord cared about her so much. And he cared about the disciples so much. They had just gone through a season of the hidden wisdom of God. And he said, listen, I've still got some work to do, but you need to tell the boys, I'm back. It's an amazing thing. That is the Jesus we serve. Listen, when you go through disappointment, and if you have never been disappointed as a believer, 
you probably haven't been walking with God very long. Or you've kept your hopes way too low. God wants to invite you into believing him for much bigger things. But that very invitation will mean that there's going to be some disappointment along the way. Because we see through a glass darkly. We see in part and we prophesy in part. Even in the prophetic, a lot of times we'll, we'll get these prophetic words and it seems as this is the whole thing and it's only part of the thing and that thing dies before it's resurrected. And what will hold you during those times is really seeing him for who he is. Because it seems as though Mary wasn't placing her faith on what she thought would happen. She had it in him. And even if he's dead, I don't know what else to do but go stand by the tomb, the last place he was. Everybody else had these aspirations and dreams, and I'm sure Mary did as well. But there was something about Mary that stayed at the tomb because she had been won by him. What will hold you during the time of disappointment and cause you to recognize Jesus when he's acting out of character seemingly? What's gonna cause you to begin to get revelation on the scripture that you would not have had without that season of disappointment is trusting in him because of your great love for him. If we hang our faith on what we think he's going to do, Rather than his character, I tell you, there's a lot of times I've thought God should act different than he does. We're going to have some conversations, and it'll, I'm sure when I see him, it'll be a lot more humble than I thought. You know, Lord, could, just, could we talk? But our faith needs to be in him, in his love for us, not what we think he's going to do or not going to do. Because we need to hold to these things very loosely. We look through a glass darkly. The disciples thought Jesus was coming to establish an earthly kingdom. And he was. But it was a whole lot much more of a long-term plan than they anticipated. And it was a whole lot bigger than they understood. And it was going to come through his death. So I want to encourage you this morning. God is looking for Marys that will, in the midst of their disappointment, say, God, I don't understand all this. I just know this. I was bound, and now I'm free. That my life was completely different after I encountered you. I don't know why all this is happening, but I'm going to hold to you. And that's what will save you during those seasons. Now, Jesus is very merciful. If you read on into chapter 21, he goes after his, 12 or his 11 disciples that he is going to send out to establish churches and uh, preach the kingdom. And they, they're going to shake the then known world. But first he has to go and call them, recall them back from the occupation he originally called them from. He's very merciful. But man, I want to be a Mary. I don't want to be a Peter. I want to be a Mary. I don't want to be one that gets all disillusioned and goes back. He's looking for Marys. There's something about this group of women, really a group of Marys, that worshipped so extravagantly, that stayed with him in his darkest hours, even though, by their own words, they didn't understand what was going on. 
They just knew, man, Lord, our heart is hooked to yours by love. Let's go ahead and stand. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your great love. Lord, we thank you that you don't bow to our counsel, that you're so much wiser than us. And Lord, we do thank you for the hidden wisdom of God. You just need to understand this morning that one of God's primary strategies in working with people is through the hidden wisdom of God. And it's so he can strip the enemy of his power in your life. But the same wisdom that's hidden to the enemy is also hidden to you. And it's your faith that's going to carry you through those times. And you can save yourself a whole lot of heartache by just holding to that and trusting in his character when you don't understand his behavior. Let me say it again. When you trust his character even though you don't understand his behavior. So Father, I ask God that those this morning who are going through a season of tremendous disappointment and they don't understand what's going on, Lord, I ask that you would reveal yourself to them like you did to Mary. Help them to realize you do call us by name. It's that intimacy that pulls us back on track. Lord, I, ha I ask God that you would help us, Lord, to trust you so that the disappointment can become our greatest victory. Lord, we trust you. We know you're wiser than us. Hallelujah. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. We have a ministry team that is available to pray for you this morning. And if you... If you're going through a real disappointment, there's things going on in your life and you just don't understand what's going on. You don't, you don't understand why God's allowed it. I'm telling you, God's here to minister to you. He wants to meet your need. He wants to reveal a facet of his character you would have never known had you not been going through what you're going through. And on the other side of this thing, you will say it's worth it. It's been worth it all. And if, you, if that's you this morning and you've just been going through a time of real disappointment, I want to invite you to come forward. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come at this time. And uh, if you need prayer, I want you just to come forward. They'll, they'll minister to you. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus, I'll tell you the greatest decision you'll ever make is surrendering to him. He is risen. He is the son of God himself who took your sin upon his shoulders and died in your stead. And all it takes is your surrender, your faith. Say, Lord, I accept your sacrifice. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come forward. Let one of these people pray with you, and they'll introduce you to Jesus. Lord, we thank you this morning. I pray that you'd bless each of us, Lord, as we go. And I ask, Lord, that you would let the truth of this message hover over us, Lord, and that it would sink deep into our hearts, and it would bring forth much fruit. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.